0: Lord, we do uh, just thank you for your word, and I thank you for the body that you're gathering together, that you have gathered together here at Timberlake, and just for the sweet times we have together here at the Lord's Day when we gather together every week and uh, spend time again together, fellowshipping, um, looking to your word, encouraging one another. And I pray, Lord, that uh, our time tonight in uh, on this topic would be a helpful one. This is a topic that's often misunderstood, can be a bit confusing. Um, one that invites many questions your word does not answer, and so I pray you would help us to even have a proper posture as we come to this, just seeking to know what you've revealed, knowing that's best for us, and being willing to stop there, and I just pray that our time tonight would be one that um, is in the truth, that we we think rightly about these matters, and that is done in a helpful way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we're working through of just the variety of topics within theology. Uh, Tonight we come to one that covers uh, angels, and then kind of as a subset within that, demons and Satan. So a lot there, and even just kind of from a practical perspective when it comes to questions about things like demon possession or just the ongoing work of Satan and demons in the world and how to respond to that. There's a lot of misunderstanding about that kind of thing. So there's a lot that we could say and would be good to say, but with only one evening and about 45 minutes here, we aren't going to be able to say nearly all of that. But nonetheless, hopefully it will be helpful and um, at least lay some of what Scripture says uh, out here. Does everyone have a handout? I think there should be enough for one for everyone. And I, I didn't give you too much content there. I basically gave you sort of a structure, a bit of an outline to help you follow as we go through. I find that's helpful at least to kind of know where we are. Um, with some space in there to be able to take some notes. I know, there's not much space there. I was trying to be realistic. I don't want to be one of those, like, naive teachers who gives people, like, 20 pages, assuming they're taking all those notes. I realize you're probably I can put a few thoughts down, that'll be all. That's okay. All right, so as we jump in, just a few thoughts from an introductory perspective, for one thing, we need to be careful about the danger of trying to squeeze out of the Bible more than's there, more than is there. Um, it is the task of theology, systematic theology, and it's appropriate in general, whenever we have questions, to go to the Bible, right? It's not as though just because we have a question. And we've started from our question, not from the scriptures, that we can't still go to the scriptures. If God's word has any sort of insight for us on a topic, we want to know what that is. That's going to be our starting point. So it's appropriate uh, to go to the scriptures regarding any topic, and yet we don't want to squeeze more out of it than is there, as though uh, we're demanding that God must be interested or must think that we need answers to everything we, we have questions about. Um take your Bibles real quickly here and turn to Deuteronomy 29. This is just a passage that I find to be so programmatic when we come to issues like this or really any kind of topic. It's a very familiar passage, um, and I think kind of at least the way I'll explain it, is appropriate within the context. I'm not going to take the time to set up the context of Deuteronomy 29 and the covenant that's being unfolded here, but it seems that kind of right at the middle of this covenant here on the plains of Moab is this statement in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. And the Lord says through Moses to Israel, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us, and to our sons that we may observe all the words of this law. So notice the distinction there. There are the things that have been revealed. That's one category. The Lord has spoken and given truth, given instruction to his people on certain things. The things that are revealed. And then the other category are all of those other things. The things that are, he calls them here, the secret things. Don't think just mysterious as in, you know, obscure, but basically everything else. The things the Lord hasn't spoken to, the things he has not revealed, right? Two categories, things the Lord has revealed, the things that have not been revealed. And he tells us how we ought to posture ourselves toward each, toward those secret things, the things that the Lord has not revealed. Well, those belong to the Lord. In other words, they're not our business, right? And then with regard to the things he's revealed, that's where we have responsibility, For those things, they belong to us. They're ours. We have responsibility for them. And not only to us, but to our sons forever, right? These things need to be taught and passed on. And not only do we need to own them and teach them, but we need to observe them, right? So there's this responsibility towards those things. And yet a whole group of things that we haven't been revealed and we have no responsibilities there. I think that's important because often... We get so caught up in the things that God hasn't revealed and wanting answers to those sorts of things that I think can become a bit dangerous because we've got to understand the Lord's wise in his revelation, right? If he hasn't revealed something, we don't need that. When we talk about the sufficiency of scripture, it's not that it's sufficient to answer every question you could possibly have, but it's everything you need for life and godliness. And so that's got to drive our, our priorities and our focus and our attention and what kinds of things kind of consume our our focus. And so when we come to this, we've got to be content. The things the Lord has revealed about this whole realm of angels and demons and Satan, we need to know that. If he's revealed it, it's going to be helpful to us. If he hasn't revealed it, we don't need to know it. And that's okay, and we can leave it there. So basic principle, but I think important to keep in mind when we come to any topic, really, but particularly this topic, let me give you a little quotation here that I thought was a very eloquently and helpfully stated. Um, this is not mine. Uh, it's from a theologian who was towering throughout the 1900s, and yet um, I would have major concerns with and not recommend that you necessarily read. So when I mention his name, don't take this as an endorsement, but his statement was so helpful on this point that I thought it was worth quoting. It's from Karl Barth, a German theologian who in some ways was respectable among German theologians, as German theologians go, and yet in other ways had his own shortcomings. But here's what he said on this topic. The Bible is not so obscure in respect of angels that we cannot responsibly draw out certain notions and concepts which are quite adequate for a Christian understanding. Good. He goes on and says this. This is the critical piece. All that is required to be able to kind of do this in a responsible way, all that is required is a firm resolve that the Bible should be allowed both to speak for itself in this matter and also to be very impressively, in its own way, quite eloquently silent. So notice that again. All that's required is a firm resolve on our part that the Bible should be allowed both to speak for itself and be impressively silent we've got to allow that and say that's good enough the lord hasn't answered those things that means we don't need those things also we've got to keep truths in a broader theological context so you could have a lot of truth true statements and without the proper context of all that scripture teaches it can be basically become an untruth it can become confusing for example we might have some true facts about angels but if those are divorced from kind of a broader context, we're going to misunderstand those. Context in terms of theolo- theology is important. We might have a true understanding of Satan, but unless we also understand our God and that he's greater, and in fact that he is the one who created Satan, we might be afraid and start wondering, well, what do we have to do to fight off this being? Right? We need the context of everything else that's revealed. When we keep a truth... A biblical truth in its place within the larger picture of biblical truth, we will know what effect each truth is supposed to have on us. In other words, okay, that's true, but what does God want us to do with that? When we keep it in its biblical context, we're able to see those things. In other words, we don't only need to know what is true, but also what we are to do with it. Now, I've set up sort of a, a big task that we still aren't going to have time to, to tackle all of that, keeping in its context, tracing out with each of these truths, like what does God expect us to do with them, because we have a limited time. Like I said earlier, I'd love to help us think through many issues out there about spiritual warfare. Um, I don't, I'm not on a social media, but I was even talking to someone this past week, and they were mentioning that like with the the news being full of this Asbury revival and all of that, that there seems to be so much about spiritual warfare and demons and all of these things surfacing again, and just that this is a perennially relevant topic. Um, Before we jump in, just a few more introductory thoughts. There are a number of texts that relate to this that are just difficult to interpret in their own right. There's a lot of, you know, discussion about that. Like, take, for example, Genesis 6 the sons of God, the daughters of men, like, you've got to first establish what you mean there before you can even know, is this relevant for angels? And so, because we have such limited time, I thought it was from a kind of a method perspective, just most judicious, to avoid the text that would take 20 minutes to talk through what they mean before applying them, and just go to the ones that are a bit clear and going to help us get at least the broad outline. So, if you think, wow, some big text, why did you not go there? Probably because there's a major interpretive question about whether they even apply to angels. Um... So I'm going to stick to the texts that are a little less disputed. And also, if, you, if you're, this is an area that's just super interesting to you, you have questions, concerns, just an interest, uh, see me afterwards. I'd be happy to put some resources or a resource, like a little several-page handout for you to walk you through biblical texts and help you think more through this. Put that in your hands and help you uh, just think about it from a biblical perspective rather than acting as though this little bit of time we have is all that, all that I can offer you. But there's certainly more that we can do to help you if you have more questions here. Okay, so jumping in, we got to first ask, from an introductory perspective, in terms of category and definition, what's the category we're talking about? What are the boundaries for this group? You know, angels, demons, Satan. What's to be included in this group? What is it that kind of ties together the various constituents of this group as all belonging here? How should we define or describe the group of beings in this group? And what label should we use for them? Just kind of parenthetically here, I'll come back to the label, but we often use angel, and yet um, angel seems to be more of a functional term that describes a role they have, not necessarily what they are in their essence. And furthermore, angel is a term in scripture that doesn't necessarily ongalos, it doesn't necessarily refer just to um, these beings, even humans can be called Angeloid, the, the angels, if they're the ones doing some sort of messaging, communicating a message. So that's still a helpful label, but my point is just, there's a question of what, how do you label this group once you've defined it? So let's work on defining. What is this group? First of all, the most important way to define this group, to put boundaries around it, is to consider the creator creator-creature distinction. Right? We could break down everything out there. All beings. distinguish in between the creator and everything that he's created. Everything else. And so in the creator category, we have the trinity. That, that's all that exists there. And then everything else is something that he has created. And when we consider it this way, clearly, all this, this group we're considering, we call them angels for now, angels are on the created, the creature side of that division. Right. If you want a text for that, there's been many points here. We could go to texts and read them, but for the sake of time, I'm going to often just refer you to texts. Uh, but if you want to see a text on that, Psalm 148. Psalm 148 in its context, particularly I think it's verse 2, uh, makes it very clear that angels are among those who are created. Now, among creatures, though, that's a big category, right? <laughs> so where do we draw the boundaries now between these creatures and all other creatures? Well, for one thing, they seem to have characteristics that give them a personal quality. We might say they possess personhood. Another way to look at it is they're rational beings. They're able to think, reason. They seem to have volition or will. They seem to be morally accountable, culpable for their actions. They also have personal names, right, like Michael, Gabriel. So that seems to give them a certain measure of personhood, say that um, other types of creatures a dog doesn't have. So uh, th- that's one important category, I think. They-, they possess personhood in that sense. Now that's helpful in that it distinguishes them from most all other creatures. Most creatures wouldn't fit into that kind of personal or rational category. But what's one other obvious creature that fits in there? Humans, right? Humans fit in there too. So how do you distinguish them from humans? There's a number of ways people do this. One is like a celestial versus terrestrial distinction. You know, heavenly versus earthly. That works. That's one that's commonly used. I think my hang-up there is that um, it's just not consistently true. Humans during the intermediate state between the time we die and the time that we're resurrected and live on the new earth... uh, At least, you know, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. So it seems fair to say that the the location we will be with Christ, he's also reigning at the right hand of the Father. So I think we can deduce from that that where we would be during the intermediate state, where we will be, is in heaven. So to say that humans, as humans, are sort of only terrestrial from the earth doesn't seem to be totally true. Though I understand that there's sort of a, a tendency there. And then on the other hand, we see angels on the earth, right? Doing their work. So they certainly aren't, like, limited to the celestial sphere and prohibited from the terrestrial sphere. So that distinction doesn't seem to me to be ideal, but it's commonly used, and I think it makes sense insofar as we just think of humans are generally earthbound and the other entity, the other group angels are not. So that's one way we could distinguish this group from humans. Another one that's often used is to say that they're spirit beings. Spirit beings. Now, initially, that might seem... bit surprising because well surely humans have spirits too right on that level though it's a bit different i think what people mean by that is that humans have a spirit but they also have a body they aren't only spirit whereas like god john 4 or um angels hebrews 1 14 they are spirit see the difference to having a spirit and being a spirit that's that's all there they don't have bodies Whereas humans also have bodies. There's this other piece, the material side of them, that's that's essential to who they are. So that's one way that they could be distinguished. Angels are spiritual beings, whereas humans are not. But you see, as soon as you start saying that, like, well, in some sense, humans are spiritual beings too. So that's why that category I don't find to be quite so helpful. So here's an easy solution. If the only other entity we need to distinguish them from within this kind of rational creature category is humans... And I'm just going to call them non-human. We can easily distinguish them from that. So the definition I gave you there um, is non-human, personal, or rational creatures. Non-human, personal, or rational creatures. So essentially here, I've just used that, you know, you guys have taken logic, you know, the typical, there's multiple ways to define something, but a common, the Aristotelian method would be genus plus difference. You put it into a category and then you distinguish it from others within that category. So, essentially, the genus, that category is creature, right? That's the basic category they're in, but then distinguish them from the rest of it. They're distinguished in two ways. One, identifying them as rational or personal, which leaves them in a category with humans, and then distinguish them from humans by calling them non-human, right? You guys see how we got there? So that's my attempt to kind of define the boundaries. This is what we're talking about when we study this topic. Now, in terms of Label, I already kind of alluded to this earlier, ahead of time. Um, We can use angel. That's probably what I'll keep using. It's just convenient. Um, It might seem a bit pedantic for me just to keep saying every time, non-human personal creature, non-human personal creature, non-human personal creature. At a certain point, as long as you understand what we're talking about, then angel is perfectly fine and will be useful in that regard as a shorthand. All right, so that's kind of what we're talking about. What's the category? What's the definition? That's what we're talking about here. Origin: where do they come from? Well, as creatures, they must not have existed prior to creation in Genesis 1. Does that make sense? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So they must not have existed before the beginning, right? Only the creator existed before that. Everything else that was created had to come about after creation began. So they must not have existed prior to creation, A number of texts speak of these beings as present at creation. So go and turn here with me. This will be one text we'll briefly look at because it's probably not one you're too familiar with. Job 38. Job 38. Job 38, verse 7. You remember this is that portion of Job where the Lord shows up after all of Job's questioning and all of these chapters of human beings weighing in and giving their input on what they think is Job's situation, and then finally the Lord shows up and just kind of doesn't even answer his question, but just basically says all you need to do is trust me. You don't need answers. And so it's in this context, uh, and early on in that, where basically he's saying, "Who are you? Were you around when I did all these things?" And then look at verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Notice this now, verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So that seems to be a category, morning stars and sons of God. I know there's so much here that could be defended if we could go back and talk about it, but that seems to be a label that's used in Scripture for angels. So they seem to be present here, worshiping the Lord at creation. Now, obviously, creation takes place over some time, right? Six days. So it appears they must have been created early in the process as God is creating the earth. So very early within um, that—I'll skip over some of these other texts, but— Exodus 20, verse 11, you can just write that one down if you want. Exodus 20, verse 11, mentions heavens and earth and all that's in them. Seemingly, also, you know, the heavens and all that's in them would refer to these beings. And it mentions that they were all created during those six days before God rested. That's in the context of Exodus 20, you know, the Ten Commandments there. So in the context of the seventh day command, the Sabbath command He's mentioning that he created all that's in the heavens and the earth during those six days before the seventh day. So it seems like they must have been created at some point then. So got all of them created in those first six days. But not all humans were created during the first six days. Humanity was created, right, in the form of Adam and Eve. But then other humans are subsequently created. Contrary to what some think, humans, it's not as though all humans were created At the original creation, then they're given bodies at certain points. No, there's actually a new human kind of brought about through human procreation um, within time and space. Humanity began back um, in the first six days. So does something like that happen with angels, or were they all created individually at that time? Scripture doesn't tell us clearly, but that passage in Matthew 22 that mentions in heaven will be like angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage— seems to suggest there's no procreation among them, so it would seem that they were all individually created. Every single one of them was created at that time in those first six days. And then the fact that they were created um, during the six days of creation, and then at the end of the six days, Genesis 131, the Lord looks at all that he's made, and his assessment is very good, right? So it seems that clearly they were created good, there wasn't. They weren't fallen in, in their state that they were created in. The fall must have come later than the sixth the day. All right, so might still leave lots of questions, but that's at least my quick attempt to kind of lay out for you the basic parameters for what we can know about their origin. Function. For the function, I'm just going to run through a number of functions that I observed. Um, they praise God. Seems pretty obvious. They praise God. If you want to put some texts on that, as I mentioned earlier, Psalm 148 and Revelation 7 would be two texts that support that. Number two, they guard. You could say they guard the sacred. If you want to write that down, that would be an easy way to say it. They guard the sacred. Longhand, kind of explaining that, they guard the presence of God from impurity particularly sinful humanity. And so we see that, for example, like in Genesis 3.24. Now notice, there's no reference to an angel per se there. It's specifically said to be a cherub or cherubim stationed outside the garden, but they seem to fit within that category I gave earlier, right, of non-human, rational, or personal creatures. The cherubim, seraphim, all these other things that uh, we're putting in that category. That's part of the reason I defined it that way rather than just saying angel. That might have seemed pedantic early on, but there's a reason for kind of drawing the boundaries as I did. Cherubim would seem to fit into that. Also, not only Genesis 3.24, where Cherubim are mentioned as guarding the entrance to the garden, but that very motif is picked up in a ton of references to Cherubim throughout all of the texts that give instructions for the tabernacle and then the temple. In particular, we see them woven into the, um, the curtain going into the tabernacle. And it seems that that's, that's exactly an image of what you find in Genesis 3. The, the Holy of Holies represents that place where God dwells like the garden, and it's protecting sinful humanity from coming close and to their own detriment. Um, so again, you see the cherubim appear many, many times in those contexts. And so in all, all those contexts, it seems like they're functioning the same way, guarding the presence of God from impurity, particularly sinful humanity. So number one, they praise God. Number two, they guard, we'll say they guard the sacred. Number three, they carry communication from God to humans. They carry communication from God to humans. I could give you a whole bunch of texts on this, but I don't think you need many. I could, you know, think of Luke 1, Luke 2, where kind of with the birth of um, John the Baptist, with the annunciation, announcement of the birth of Jesus. You have angels announcing these, Gabriel. So very clear, I think there's plenty of texts that you could think of for that, carry communication from God to humans. Number four, they not only carry communication, but they seem to interpret visions for humans. So like Daniel 8, we find an angel there interpreting a vision for Daniel. Number five, they rescue humans. For example, in Daniel 6, when Daniel's in the lion's den... Who does he say kept the lion's mouth shut? Angels, right, that the Lord sent to do that, to save him, to rescue him. So that's just one example. They rescue humans. This next category uh, is informing and directing humans. So that probably sounds very similar, and I almost thought about not distinguishing this from carrying communication from God to humans other than that in a number of passages, they aren't specifically coming, saying, I'm bringing you a message from God. They're more so just giving some kind of information or direction. So informing and directing humans. There's also another broad category uh, of caring for humans in some way. I've got text I'm trying to think of the context here. So, like 1 Kings 19, I think that's where angels come and minister to Elijah after the whole showdown with the prophets of Baal. Matthew 4, after Jesus' temptation and the fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, um, they come and minister to him. So, some sort of care for humans. Luke 22, I think that's in the context of the Garden of Gethsemane, where angels come and minister to Jesus in the garden. Another one, another function of angels, administering judgment. So 2 Samuel 24, I believe that's the context of David calling for the census, Joab to go do the census. And remember, because of that, um, there's judgment brought out, three options, and there's like what, 70-something thousand that are killed by the angels um, among Israel because, for, for judgment for that um, yeah, so there are other texts about here, Acts 12, but administering judgment. And the last one I gave is sort of one of those interesting ones that comes up mostly in Daniel, and we get these categories that sort of blow our categories, they stretch our minds, but um, supervision of nations. Supervision of nations. So I've got one text that's outside of um, Daniel, and that's Deuteronomy thirty Now That one's a little bit difficult because Certain versions based upon different manuscripts uh, will read differently there. Some say sons of Israel, some say sons of God. So if it's sons of God, then that would seem to refer to angels here, like the sons of God that are you know, a part of related to specific nations is what it would seem to suggest. And then in Daniel 10 and 12, you've got a number of references to specific angels who are associated with specific nations and somehow having some measure of supervision there. Particularly Daniel 12.1 suggests that Michael is responsible for caring for Israel. All right. Just so some high-level facts, considerations about angels. Now let me, before we move on further into considering Satan and demons, just consider a few practical considerations or applications flowing out of this. I'm just partly I wrote this down just thinking of like what are ways that people sometimes seem to be confused so don't be insulted if you've never thought this but just ways people might sometimes be confused number one the Bible does not teach that humans are angels before they're conceived it's not as though we were all angels and then one day we were kind of conceived and we become humans the Bible does not teach that humans don't exist at all before they're conceived by their parents Nor does it teach that humans become angels after they die. Yes, there will be a time, the intermediate state, where our bodies will be left in the grave while we await the resurrection, and we are with Christ without bodies. But it never doesn't call us angels at that point. We're just sort of these strange disembodied humans at that point. Another one, these beings are not worthy of our highest respect because they too are creatures. They're on that same side of the ledger that we are. They're servants of the Lord just like we are. So I think of like Revelation 22 where John's tempted to worship an angel and the angel says, no, 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 I'm a fellow slave of the Lord like you are. Do not worship me. Let me just say as a side note there, sometimes I think we can be a bit, the right verb here, beguiled, naive, when it comes to Talk about angels in general, and here's why. Because we, we sometimes set up this simplistic view of the world as though all that's opposed to God is secular. And therefore, this is the, the kind of unintended inference, anything that seems spiritual, that has some kind of echo of biblical Christianity, must be good. So something like touched by an angel. Well, clearly, like, that's opposing the secular agenda. So that's got to be good. That's, Christ loves that. I think it's just naive because there's, there's a lot out there that's religious that's not biblical Christianity and that is very distracting. So I think we, gotta, we should be careful about that. Sometimes we look at a passage like Hebrews 1 where it seems like there was a tendency to elevate angels in some way and it just seems so remote like, oh, how do we even apply that? None of us struggle with that. And yet, there is this tendency sometimes within our own circles to revere angels unduly. Whether it's touched by an angel or just little stories from chicken soup for the soul. Um, it's just kind of pseudo-biblical spirituality, which in many ways, because it looks somewhat similar, can really be a bit of a distraction because it has nothing to do with Christ or, or just clarity about the gospel and the mission Another one, while angels might have brought messages from God to humans, we don't need to think of angels as intermediaries. The Roman Catholic Church sometimes sets up angels as sort of intermediaries, that they'll, they'll make sure our messages go, go far, that uh, the Lord hears them. In Christ, we, we can relate to God directly. Or maybe we can say we have one mediator, that is Christ, through whom we relate to God. But we don't need any other mediator. Uh, there is no biblical basis for praying to angels. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that based upon a text in an uh, apocryphal book, Tobit. But there's no biblical basis for praying to angels. And every biblical basis to praying for, to the, the members of the Trinity. So <laughs> avoid praying to angels. Do not do that. Usually I'm going to state this one as a question. Can we pray to God that he would provide us with assistance through angels? I don't know of anything that specifically says that would be problematic. We have texts like Matthew 26, where after Jesus rebukes Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane and says, put your sword back, could I not call legions of angels to come help? Um, It seems like there would be, it's kind of a category for that, praying to God that he would send angelic assistance. And yet that's like the only text I can think of. It's never commanded. We're regularly commanded to pray directly to God and kind of leave the, the methods up to him. And so that certainly wouldn't seem to be like a a normal route we'd want to go, just assuming that God's going to do everything through angels, though we know he does do some of his work through angels. I personally would just avoid prescribing how God goes about that and just pray generically and openly. Here's, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so you asked about the angel of the Lord category, um, that that title. So as many of you are familiar, the the Old Testament angel of the Lord, and exactly like trying to identify him, whether he's just one of the angels and identified as a messenger coming from the Lord, or whether um, it's like a specific one, whether it's just the Lord coming and he's called the angel of the Lord, but just a manifestation of Yahweh himself, or even a common view that it's the second member of the Trinity, sort of. Pre-incarnation, but manifesting himself—that's often called like a Christophany, an appearance of Christ before that. That's a difficult one. Um, I myself am not inclined, though I would—I want to do more thinking about that. But I don't find the evidence for it being a Christophany to be overwhelming. So um, I have intentionally left that one out. In every context, it seems like—it seems like all that's going on there is they're doing kind of the things we talked about, right? They're communicating a message from God to humans, so it didn't necessarily contribute more to the discussion. Do you have something else you want to add there, though? No, okay. It's a very good question, though. That was a, a, uh, a loud omission on my part, so um, yeah, appropriate to ask about that. So the last thing I had written down here in terms of um sorry, spider. <laughs> The last thing I have here is guardian angels. How about that for a topic? Guardian angels. That's one that comes up a lot. Well, certainly we have biblical texts that say that angels can do things like rescue humans, right? So the idea of an angel that God might use to protect or to guard a human, we have biblical basis for that. I think the one piece that's often assumed in that category of guardian angel that scriptures does not address is the piece of every human having an angel assigned, like devoted to them, to that task. And scriptures doesn't anywhere address that. There are a couple texts that are sometimes appealed to um, Matthew 18, Acts 12. For the sake of time, I'm not going to spend too much time going into that. I just don't think those are quite so clear in, in teaching that that's actually the case. But certainly, God cares for his people. And he sometimes appears from biblical testimony, does that through angels. We just don't know. Usually we won't know how God's done that for us. So I don't think that really makes any practical difference other than um, it's just an idea that people often go to. All right. So that's what I have for you on the topic of angels. I know it probably seems like super high level and cursory, but limited time. Just lay down the, the foundational pieces. Next, let's consider Satan and demons. So starting again with definition and category, this will be easy, don't worry. Just in summary, it seems that this refers to this category I'm going to give you here of Satan and demons. We're just talking about all of these angels, these non-human personal creatures who have fallen, have sinned, have rebelled against the Lord. So all of that first category, the broader category we've been considering, who have sinned, have rebelled against the Lord. And then within that, Satan is distinguished from the the rest of the group as like this unique one who seems to have a leadership role among them. And then, you're probably wondering, well then, are all the rest of them besides Satan demons? That's very possible. But I don't know that we could say that every fallen angel falls under the category of demon. We show me texts that make that a perfect match. So theoretically, there, there are references to fallen angels who aren't called demons, so that could be that they're still properly fit under demons, but we just don't know. They could, there could be some that fall outside of that category. <clears throat> now, as I was thinking about this yesterday in preparing for this, I just thought, it's interesting that we're often not surprised by the fact that there are some of these beings who are not fallen. Ever thought about that? Like, we talk about all of creation being fallen, and yet, like, there's, like, this huge category of these angels who have never fallen. And so, in some sense, like, I'm approaching this as though, oh, the default is there aren't fallen, and look, here's this unique category that is fallen, but we tend to think, like, everything's fallen, right? And yet, there's this whole big category of angels who aren't. So, in some sense, the very fact there are some that aren't is a bit um, surprising or interesting. So, what's their origin? The origin of Satan and demons? Well, as angels fitting within that category of what we'll, for convenience call angels, they were created with the rest during the first six days during the six days of creation. And in terms of origin, they were created good. We know that because of Genesis: 131. At the end of those six days, all things created, God surveys it and says it is very good. So God did not create you could say <laughs> As beings, he created Satan and demons, but they weren't Satan or demons when he created them. They were angels, and then subsequently they fell and kind of took on that that title. So their fall. What do we know about their fall? I'm just going to throw some text out there, but that they've sinned or fallen is clear from Matthew 25, 41. I believe that's the one that talks about... um, was it say the lake of fire that was created for Satan and his and the fallen angels? Yeah, into the eternal fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels. So it's clear there's been some kind of sin, some kind of fall, some kind of at least impending judgment. I guess I'm backing into by deduction that there was a fall or um, sin. Second Peter two four. Second Peter two four seems to indicate that some have sinned or fallen. I'm just giving you a few texts here. That one says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment or very similar and related to that, Jude six. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So simple, obvious fact, but just a few texts to ground that, that some angels have sinned or fallen. So they're all created good, they sin and fall. When did that happen? um, Well, be patient here, but by Genesis 3.1 we get this reference to this serpent that's the craftiest of all beasts of the field, and then we find him immediately opposing God, being judged by God, it seems that there's already this creature, something has already gone wrong, right? There's already evil. There's already some kind of fall in the greater created order. I'm clarifying that because obviously until Adam and Eve sin, there's not actually a fall among humanity, but there's already something amiss. There's some kind of fall out there. We see that the serpent seems here to be very clearly an evil God-opposing element that's now in creation. So some kind of fall has already happened. At least one of the angelic beings, even prior to human sin. So at least one of them seems to have fallen by that point. And later in scripture, we learn that Satan's activity was what stood behind or in the serpent. And just a text for that. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, maybe verses 1 and 2. Um, specifically says that Satan is that serpent of old. So clearly identifying him there. I did have a few notes here that were kind of some quick thoughts just in terms of what was the relationship between Satan and that serpent. But for the sake of time, I keep moving. Think about questions. I'm not sure we have time for questions, and I'm not sure I want to leave time for questions. But if we do have time for questions... (laughs) then maybe we can get back to that if that's of interest to anyone. <clears throat> when, other, when other angelic beings who have fallen fell is not clear, the timing of that. right We're not given any other info. Did they all fall at the same time? Has, have they been able to fall kind of at any point? Could there be some good angels at this point who will fall at some future point? I don't know. Scripture doesn't give us any kind of clear Definition. I'm not aware of anything that says they must have all fallen at the same time or that those good angels have now kind of been confirmed and are unable to fall. So I would think that there could continue to be sin among them, but that's total speculation. We just don't know. All right, so that's what I've got for you in terms of the fall of angels thus becoming Satan or demons. Now, what about the work of Satan? What is his work? I'm sure there are some things I... I didn't give you quite as exhaustive of a list, but just some generic things. For one thing, we see that during this period, he, he seems to move about in both heaven and earth. So whatever work he's doing, which we'll get to in a moment, he's doing it in both heaven and earth. He seems to be able to move between those. For him doing work in heaven, we see, for example, Job 1 and 2, where he shows up along with other angels. Um, I think that passage uses the label sons of God for them, I think. Um, to obviously accuse. That's basically what Satan, Satan means in Hebrew. An accuser, to accuse Job. So that's his work in heaven moving about there. And then also on earth, we see things like, um, obviously he's working in and through the serpent in Genesis 3, um, 1 Peter 5, 8, that he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Um, we could go to plenty of other texts, Mark 1, Matthew 4, where we have Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, right? Satan shows up there. So plenty of texts where he shows up on earth as well. So he's able to move about both heaven and earth. And it seems like if I was to give one general overarching kind of, maybe I'm saying, mixing my metaphors here, general overarching or even foundational, if you can understand how those two both metaphorically would refer to the same thing, a task that that we could put in that category would be he's intent on turning humans away from trusting the lord he seems to be intent on turning humans away from trusting the lord so in genesis 3 that's exactly what he's doing basically i know god has said that but you ought to doubt that either doubt that's really what he said or doubt that that's true he's he he doesn't have your best interest in mind what he's saying is true is not really true um, in some ways, all of Ephesians 6, 10 and following um, would support that as well. He seems to be intent on turning humans away from trusting the Lord. Here's another important thing about the work of Satan. All of his activities are under the sovereign permission of God. All of his activities are under the sovereign permission of God. And a text for that would be, I'm going to give you two from Job, Job 1.12 and Job 2.6. Job 1.12, Job 2.6. In both of those texts, God says basically, Satan, you can go do this to Job, but you can only go this far. And Satan doesn't even try. It's clear he can't go beyond that. So it's all under God's sovereign control. And some of you might have sort of this side question that flows out of that, like, "That, that creates a problem for me, the fact that all that Satan is doing would be under God's sovereign control. And that's just a point where I think we've got to hold what Scripture says and take hold of it, right? What Satan does is under God's sovereign control, and God is untainted by evil. He is purely good, and Satan is culpable for all that he does. And we just have to hold on to those realities, because I'm not aware of too many texts that bring a nice, neat, easy resolution for that. But Scripture is clear about each of those sides. Does that make sense? To, to go beyond that and to really press the point in my mind when we see that God has said both, Is almost to say, God, you must explain yourself to me. And again, going back to Deuteronomy 29 29, like those things the Lord hasn't revealed, we we don't have to know. We don't need to know. We just need to know what He has revealed. So we take those things, we hold on to them, we lay hold of them and believe them. Um, Yes, finishing up the work of Satan, He is not omnipresent, He's not everywhere. We could also add in there if we want to continue with the omnis, he's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient. But in particular, I wanted to point out that he's not omnipresent. And he's apparently present wherever he is working. So like Job 1:7 presents him as like going to do a task. 1 Peter 5:8, he's you know, prowling about, roaming about looking for someone to devour. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3, where he's bound and thrown into the pit. Practical application comes later, but just one, one aspect to that is if Satan is only able to be in one place at one time, then at least in terms of what he is personally doing in his own person, I'm distinguishing that from like st- st- demons as his minions, what he himself is doing is significantly limited in terms of his ability, right? He's not everywhere doing everything that looks bad. He, he's in certain places doing those things but I think that at the very least that should curtail some of our tendencies sometimes to assume that he's everywhere and kind of lurking in every shadow. At the very least, it needs to cut down our, our estimation of him. That doesn't mean he's not a very real threat that we need to take seriously in terms of what, how scripture tells us to respond to it, but nonetheless not overestimate his ability. All right, next, the work of demons. Keep it simple. Their current task seems to generally be to extend the work of Satan. So that work of Satan in terms of turning humans away from trusting the Lord, they seem to basically be his minions extending his work. Under the work of Satan and the work of demons, there's a whole lot that, more that could be said. We could do a whole lot more to list out all that scripture says, but for something like this time we've got, I'm trying to give you big, high-level summaries. Now, I term this next section the future for Satan. It probably wasn't the best way. Even now, I'm not sure if I can think of immediately a better way, but essentially, like, what's what's his doom? What does the future hold for Satan? Well, we know from a number of texts that Christ's first coming already laid the foundation for and confirmed his ultimate doom. Christ's first coming, particularly his cross work, his death and resurrection on the cross, has already kind of laid that that foundation stone. It's done the primary work of bringing about his ultimate doom, even though that verdict hasn't yet been brought about. There are some texts that would suggest that in some ways his work has been curtailed in some way or affected in some way by Christ's first coming. But that's important that has already been done his doom is already assured not just kind of prophetically but even in terms of some sort of action that's already been taken that's kind of secured that and then in the future he will first be incarcerated bound for a thousand years during the millennial period we find everything i'm gonna say here comes from revelation 20 he'll be bound during the thousand year kingdom the millennium Then he'll be released and able to continue his work of deceiving at the end of the millennium when he'll actually deceive nations and then he'll finally be condemned to the lake of fire for eternity. All of that, like I said, comes from Revelation 20. And then what about the future for demons? Well, theirs is the same. Matthew 25, 41 would indicate their future is the lake of fire. All right, so finally, practical considerations. For one thing, The fact that Satan and demons, like all angels, fall on the creature side of the ledger. That basic distinction, creator-creature, Satan, angels, demons, they all fall on the creature side, means that scripture gives no place for like an ultimate dualism in our thinking, meaning that there are two great powers in history that are dueling it out. I shouldn't use that verb because that sounds like it's related to dualism, but it's not that are kind of going at it, um, and it's, it's one big battle to see who's going to win. That kind of thinking has no place in Scripture because Satan is one of his creatures. Like, he, he brought him into existence. So there is no real kind of on an equal plane battling it out. There is a clear differentiation in which God could at any point bring about Satan's demise but he doesn't in great patience um, for his own purposes. So he is a creature. Satan is a creature. His demons are creatures, and we should not think in terms of dualism. And this one's somewhat synthetic, meaning I'm pulling together a variety of truths from Scripture, but while there's a variety of ways that Satan and demons work, and that may sometimes cause certain unease and concern among us, He primarily gets a foothold in humanity through persuading us to believe lies rather than the truth God has revealed to us. So, you know, how how will Satan or demons have an influence in my home? Listen, don't think in all kinds of strange, mystical ways. The way Satan gets a foothold, he got it in humanity, and he gets it in individual people's lives, is by convincing them to believe lies, to believe that what God has said is not true, to doubt the truth of what God has revealed, and to believe lies. So we don't need to fear, as believers in particular, we don't need to fear just the brute power of Satan or demons. We need to be aware of and guarded against his deception. And that's critical, because there's so many ways that believers can be lulled into fearing Satan, all the while being naive, And not doing the diligent heartwork of continually going back to what are the lies I'm believing, what does scripture say about that, and replacing those with truth. That's like the fundamental way that you resist the devil. And all those other ways that tend to kind of capture our imagination, wondering, you know, how how can I make sure that Satan doesn't get a foothold in my home or influence my children, those are primarily just distractions. Bring your own heart and your family's heart back to the truth and continue to, to... Encourage, exhort one another to believe what God has revealed. All right. I know that was quick. Probably felt like a lot of info. But hopefully, that was for one one session, gave you a helpful overview. All right. I'm going to be foolish here. Do we have any questions? (laughs) Doug, go ahead. Mm -hmm. yeah wanting to acknowledge kind of lots that we don't know it seems to me that that's simply different labels being used because as I defined it demons would be sort of a subcategory of angels so when it says that humans are possessed by demons then the assumption would be those are angels so we could say humans are possessed by angels yeah go ahead Yeah, Luke 10 I believe. Luke 10 I believe, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, if I remember the context correctly, that's at the end when the 70 disciples, the 70 who were sent out, come back and kind of report on the work they've done. And that's what Jesus says, kind of he sees as the result of the work they've done. And so texts like that are what led me to, I made a short little statement, it was real quickly inserted, that not only did he his death kind of, and in his first coming, in that work, do something to lay the foundation for defeating Satan but in some measure seems to have already struck a blow. That wasn't the language I used, but there are texts like that one that seem to suggest that. Matthew 12 is the one where um, the Pharisees accuse him of doing what he's doing by Beelzebul, Um, and he basically uses that parable about uh, coming in and uh, binding the strong man so his, his goods can be looted, and so it seems as though there's some sense in which... Now, I want to be careful there because there's some sense in which Satan has been, like you said, put on a leash. There's some sense of that, and yet there's a fuller sense of his binding that Revelation 20 holds out for the future. And as you said, First Peter 5, he's still roaming about. So there's kind of two dimensions. That's why I was more content with the language of like dealt some kind of blow already to Satan at his first coming while also laying the foundation for his ultimate, total, complete demise. Yeah, I think I think that would be fair. I like that category, and I think it applies here, at least in part. (laughs) Go ahead. Wow, lots of questions. I'm starting to regret this. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 You're referring to like Daniel 10. Yeah, So, you know, if, if, if there wasn't any restraint on Satan, he had total free will, he destroyed his you need. He was allowed. Uh, and uh, so, anyway, there, there's certainly some kind of restriction of God is doing on Satan, but I've uh, just always yep. baffled me. The strongest angel in heaven was held up. Held up, yeah. I think God is okay. And you know, yeah. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that's Daniel 10, you're right. That's an interesting passage. But obviously, yeah, God, I guess your point is, could come to his help, right? And have made sure he was able to get to his destination right away rather than being held up for, I think it was three days by the Prince of Persia. Um, But he doesn't. He kind of allows that to work itself out. Because doesn't, in that context, Michael says, that like, another angel. Was it Gabriel? Another angel came to help him, it seems. Anyways, interesting observation. Go know Yep. also that fall us. Yeah. Hung up. Correct. But you seem to have appealed to a text in James to suggest it couldn't be Satan. Well, yeah, I it fun, I guess. yeah. Correct. Yeah, I'm not aware of, what, of that. So I would think that Satan certainly can tempt us. I think the critical piece is we were sometimes tempted to jump to the conclusion that every temptation is Satan. And quite frankly, it doesn't really matter where the temptation is coming from, whether it's coming from our own heart. In some ways, our own heart, after the fall, has basically been allied with Satan. And so it's kind of doing, it's become a minion of of Satan in itself. Um, And so it's sort of doing that work for us by telling us lies. So it's doing a satanic, serpentine work within us. Um, So whether it is Satan himself or demons or just our own heart telling us lies it's all sort of on that evil god opposing reb- rebellion side of the ledger and so i think it doesn't we don't have to just identify exactly what it is we just need to respond to the lies with truth yeah we'll take one more go ahead yes trying to think of texts that would indicate that can you think of any i'm not aware of any i think that at the ascension of christ luke might report that angels were there kind of receiving him into i'm not sure if he even used that language of receiving him but that's the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father seems to be a bit different, a bit different category, and then we would have to extrapolate from that one description to this is what happens for the case in the case of every believer. So that text wouldn't seem to really even come close to supporting that. That's that's the text that people often use, and the difficulty with that one, this is just a, that's a difficult text because. Do you define that as a parable? It's clearly set up as though it's explaining kind of a truth, right? And yet, is, is it not communicating any sense of what really is happening? Is it only parabolic? That's a difficulty. So to the extent that it, it isn't meant to teach us that principle, but that it is simply kind of communicating the truth of the, the parable in that context, then I don't know if we can necessarily deduce from that that's what happens to every believer. See, so this is one of those areas where there's just it's kind of vague, do you have anything to follow up with on that, though? No. Yeah, good question, though. All right, I'm going to stop us there. All right, thank you all for your patience and your engagement. hope that was helpful. Let me just close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that you, through the work of Christ, have decisively defeated all evil, and that through your Spirit working in our hearts to give us new hearts so that we might yield ourselves in faith to your Lordship, that, that that work is is massively underway in our own hearts. We are already freed from the penalty of sin. Its power over us, as we've been hearing from Romans 6, is broken. And even though Satan and his minions are still running about out there, they have no power over us. And and we look forward to their ultimate demise, um, trusting you and knowing that he's still very much at a work in the world, so we want to be on on the alert, continuing to... Be aware of deception, bringing our, our minds to your word and submitting them to your word by faith and being aware that there is a whole world over which Satan rules that is deluded and on the offensive and yet we're just reminded of the gospel of John and in Revelation that you say that we conquer even as we're, as we're slaughtered. Um, And so may we just continue to cling to Christ, cling to that testimony, proclaim it with clarity uh, that others might be freed from the deception and trust you, Lord, and that through that we know your mission will go forward regardless of what is done to the outer man. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to embrace those truths that we might In days that might ahead be dark days, be all the more fruitful because we are not shirking back, but because we continue to hold forth the word of life with courage and clarity regardless of what comes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.